Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile syrup podcast where tech meets pop culture. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to make a personal announcement. This will be my final episode as the host of Viewer Experience, as I'll be moving on for Mobile Syrup in February 2019. We here at Mobile Syrup began working on Viewer Experience in March 2018, partly as a way of expanding Mobile Syrup's typical coverage, but entirely out of a love for television, film, popular culture, and technology. Our first episode aired on April 3rd, 2018, and over the course of the subsequent nine shows, I've personally had the chance to interview a collection of amazing guests, I've had the chance to discuss some great art as well as some real stinkers, and I've had the opportunity to experiment with a storytelling format that is admittedly still quite new to me. Though I'll no longer be running viewer experience, the podcast will remain with Mobile Syrup, so stay tuned for more episodes. On that note, let's get on with the show. Today's episode is on Netflix's Fire, the greatest party that never happened. Somebody call 911, shoddy fire burning on the dance floor. On the show with me today is Mobile Syrup Managing Editor Patrick O'Rourke. How are you doing today, Patrick? What's up? I ate a cheese sandwich before doing this podcast. Did you actually eat a cheese sandwich before doing this podcast? No, I didn't. I just thought that'd be funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. Later on the show, I'll speak with online content creator and blogger Casey Stewart, who will shed some insight on the subject of blogging and online influencing. I'll also speak with University of Toronto professor and chair of the university's social justice education department, Megan Bowler. Professor Bowler will share some theory about the use of social media and the internet. But first, Patrick and I are going to speak a little bit about Netflix's Fire Festival documentary in a segment I like to call, We Didn't Start the Fire Festival, It Was Always Burning, Since the World's Been Turning. Here are some credits. Fire was written and directed by Chris Smith. Jake Berghart, Corey Freeman-Lott, and Henry Zabalos were responsible for the film's cinematography, while the whole thing was edited together by John Carmen and Daniel Kohler. Netflix's Fire tells the story of the eponymous Fire Festival, a music festival that was originally supposed to serve as a way for entrepreneur Billy McFarland and singer-songwriter-turned-hip-hop mogul Ja Rule to advertise their Fire talent booking application. Over the course of 97 minutes, Fire outlines the horror that descended upon the team responsible for organizing the festival, with supporting interviews from a collection of individuals who are associated with the Fire app, the Fire Festival, and individuals associated with Billy McFarland himself. Now, Patrick, you've been with viewer experience from the start. You know how this works, but since this is the final time I'll be hosting this podcast, it's only appropriate that I ask one last time. Patrick, how did you feel about Fire, the greatest party that never happened? So I watched Hulu's documentary first. I watched Fire Fraud. Um, and I think it's it's very interesting to kind of compare and contrast the two, um, the two documentaries because they obviously cover, cover the exact same topic. But there are some pretty stark differences between the two fire fraud for instance is a little more lighthearted, but it does have like interviews with billy mcfarland the guy behind the whole the whole sham and i, I think the netflix documentary takes a much serious tone it still pokes fun at like uh, rich influencers being ripped off um, but it also shows the effects uh, on like the people that were involved in it the the mental pain that they had to go through the people who uh, live on the island that helped create the festival that just didn't get paid, like all the bad stuff that happened, whereas the the uh, Hulu documentary, though it does delve into that, I think doesn't place as much of an emphasis on it. I thought it was good. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, a lot of it wasn't a surprise to me because I had followed this pretty closely because it fits in with my interests in a, in a lot of different ways, uh, checks those boxes. So I, I wasn't necessarily surprised by a lot of it, but I think it was uh, definitely an interesting um, and, more importantly, entertaining documentary. 
So I'm glad you brought up the Hulu documentary because I do want to get to fire fraud in a little bit. But before we get to fire fraud, maybe let's talk a little bit about the fire festival itself. And I'm curious when the news stories first broke out about the fire festival itself, not the documentaries about the festival. Were you paying attention to Twitter? Were you on Instagram? Were you following the news reports? So I was following it, and the the only reason why I knew what the fire festival was was because Blink One Eighty Two had pulled out of performing, and they were the first act like the first there's a there's a whole string like the Migos are supposed to reform there's all kinds of different groups but they were the first act to pull out to my knowledge um so then I was like what the heck is this thing Blink-182 loves money they're like huge sellers in 2019 or 2018 at the time so or was it 2017 when the fire festival was regardless <laughs> they pulled out um and then a bunch of other artists pulled out and it started to snowball you could kind of see the writing on the wall of what was going to happen i think there was some thought that perhaps the entire festival would be canceled before it even got off the ground and then people actually were there you saw um notable influencers but then you also saw um people that had like no followers that were just tweeting out images like i think the one that went viral that i referenced before we started talking um the the cheese sandwich the like lettuce and cheese sandwich or whatever it was that was just from some guy that i'm assuming he's rich because he was at the fire festival but it was just a random guy that tweeted at a picture and it was getting cited by like uh cnn and like all all these big news organizations that were covering the story um so yeah I, i mean to actually answer your question it was definitely on on my radar while it was all happening See, I wasn't really paying that much attention to it at the time. All I saw was, like you said, the uh, the photograph that really set off the the powder keg, the the, the photograph of the uh, the cheese sandwich and the. I guess like spinach and lettuce and a little bit of kale probably with the dressing. Um, and when I when I saw it when I saw that photograph on Twitter for the first time, I just I, I was confused. I was conflicted. But then I found out that in some capacity, Jaw Rule was involved, and all of a sudden my interest skyrocketed. Like as soon as I found out that Jaw Rule, first of all, was still doing things, <laughs> you know, um, that he was still like trying to, I guess push forward the culture in some way, shape, or form. I was fascinated by it, but I didn't really follow the story of it. So I didn't know about Billy McFarland. I didn't know about, you know, I didn't even know there was an app. I didn't really know what it was. All I knew was that it was this, like, fantasy island for influencers that turned into a nightmare for everyone involved. I think what that was one of the things that I found most interesting about the documentary is the fact that so so um, when it was all happening, it didn't seem like Jaw Rule was that involved. He was just like the figurehead, the face of it. Um, that's how what he claimed as well, right? That he didn't know everything that was happening. And then you get into this documentary and there's like footage of him visiting the island. There's footage of him being there during like the lavish marketing shoot that was all, it turned out to, to just be marketing. And there was even like after everything happened, you thought he would just like cut ties and disappear? No, he was there on a conference call, like encouraging fire festival employees to like let's figure this out we can do it guys this is what we do so he was like extremely involved in the entire operation and somehow got out relatively scot-free like i think he's involved in um there's there's some sort of lawsuit with uh a class action lawsuit with some of the attendees and i think he's named in that but beyond that like he's not in jail right now for this right like it was billy mcfarland that took the fall for it that was one of the things i was super shocked about i think the other thing, I was always on the, under the impression that the entire festival wasn't made to be a scam. It evolved into it over time. And I'm still kind of on the fence about that because I think they paint Billy as like a pretty sympathetic character in the beginning. He wanted to do this cool festival. He had this amazing concept or this concept that he thought was amazing. And it turned into like one lie, turned into two lies, turned into three lies, and it just started snowballing. But then like when it really delves into it, it seems like he just had this scam in mind the whole entire time and thought that he wouldn't get caught. Um, so I'm of two minds about that where I think that maybe he really did want to put on like a cool festival and just literally had no idea what he was doing. Or maybe it was just a big scam the whole time. When these kinds of, you know, white collar crimes take place, when we, you know, when the Bernie Madoffs of the world finally get, you know, what, what we imagine, you know, is their due, we always try to, or rather, what, we, I, what I always find is that we, we paint this picture of, you know, these wealthy individuals, these wealthy privileged individuals finally getting payback for the bad things that they've done. I mean, you know, Bernie Madoff, of course, was trying to fleece people out of their money. But it's interesting. I didn't think of Billy McFarland as a sympathetic person until I watched the documentary, because again, I 
just thought to myself, oh, here's another overprivileged, wealthy person, you know, a wealthy American uh, trying to trying to put together this this scam of a festival to steal people's money. And of course, he's stealing money from even wealthier people, even oh, yeah. more privileged people. So the whole thing for me before I watched the documentary was like this just wonderful Rube Goldberg machine of, of rich people taking rich people's money. But then I watched the documentary and I, you know, went through the whole process. I did some extra reading. So, yeah, it sort of does seem like Billy McFarland just snowballed lie after lie after lie with the intention of it all working together. And it's even funnier because there's these numerous scenes in the documentary where one bad thing happens. And it's like, if that one bad thing didn't happen, maybe it could have worked out. But then another bad thing happened. And then the, you know, the, the water bottles are held at customs. And then there's, a, there's like a tropical storm. And then they can't, even, they can't even use the island that they advertised and so on and so on and so forth. But like if they had just either cut ties early on or if all of those you know, seven or eight bad things hadn't happened that were freaks of nature, then maybe the Fire Festival would have just been remembered as this very subtle, very expensive, disappointing festival, but one that ultimately didn't end in disaster. One of the things that I thought was interesting, too, was uh, I can't remember the name of his PR person. Uh, but he he was prominently featured in the documentary, uh, the, the PR person for like, the, I guess the head of PR for all of the fire festival. He was talking about how he was encouraging younger staffers to stay on because he had this vision that like, okay, this will probably be a bit of a disaster, but it will be remembered and it will be huge and we'll do it better next time. Um, and then he cited like all kinds of other music festivals from the past, like Woodstock where things went wrong, but there's still people forget about the bad. They just remember the good. And because one thing for me was like, if this job was so horrible, like why wouldn't you just quit? Like, why wouldn't you just leave? Like, I'm, I don't know how much they're getting paid, but the money probably wasn't worth it. I think they all, everyone who worked there genuinely until like the last couple of days believed that it was going to pull together in some way and be this huge thing. And then I guess the other thing um, that made me sort of flip the script on what Billy had in mind for this whole thing was uh, his credit card scam company. That the he, Magnesis, Magnesis company? Magnesis, yeah, that he did before was essentially the blueprint for what this would be, right? So it's not even like he was naive. I, I think he was naive there, so there's a, a level of that to it. But he, I think he knew to an extent exactly what he was doing the entire time. So then from your perspective... Billy McFarland is culpable. He is responsible for everything. I mean, obviously he's responsible because he was organizing it, but he knew what he was doing. It wasn't so. just freaks of nature, you know, random tropical storms messing with his grand plan. I do think that at one point, maybe he wanted to put on a really cool music festival in the Bahamas for rich influencers. But then I think it very quickly evolved into something different and he just kept rolling with it, hoping that maybe it would work out, but knowing deep down that it wouldn't. Do you say that as a person who's seen the Netflix documentary, or are you saying that as a person who's seen both the Netflix and the Hulu documentary? I think I think it's seeing both, right? Um, because I, I would say that the Hulu documentary wasn't quite as good as the Netflix one. The production values weren't um, weren't weren't as high, but they had interviews with Billy, uh, like I mentioned before, and I think that really gives you perspective on who he is as a person. Like they're they're calling him out on things while he's being interviewed, and he's like looking at them boldface and, and lying <laughs> about them or coming up with some sort of explanation, even though they have like the evidence right in front of him. And I think that more than anything, and even more than what we saw in the Netflix documentary really speaks to his character as a, as a person. Um, and that's kind of when I, I turn, turn the tide on it. But then there, there is still part of me that thinks like, and I mentioned this before that he did want to do this right but he knew that it wasn't going to work out and still kept going with it, which I think is just as bad in, in some sense. So it's like a, a lie of a mission, you know? He, yeah. he obviously told a bunch of lies, but even if things had worked out, he still, you know, by definition, had, had deceived a bunch of people, had not stolen necessarily, but again, fleeced some very wealthy people out of quite a bit of money. Well, even, even people that worked on, on the festival, like setting it up, uh, uh, people that lived on the island, Exuma in the Bahamas, they were screwed out of so much money. Like there's a scene in the Netflix documentary where um, I think it was the woman uh, that li lives on the island was in charge of feeding the staff, I believe. I mean, she took it upon herself to feed the staff because she, she runs yeah, a she restaurant. Had to, she had to pay it out of her own pocket. Out of her own pocket, yeah, yeah. And then she had to pay the staff that she hired, like the additional staff out of her own pocket as well. And she never got any of that money back, man. Like that's that's insane. That takes like... You got to be a sociopath 
not to to like feel guilty about that and then you see after he's still running like another scam while he's out on bail as like the puppet master behind it they were like reselling tickets that didn't exist for crazy amounts of money um, I think that's in the Netflix documentary. That as well, one isn't it? is definitely in the Netflix documentary. Yeah. I, I haven't seen the Hulu documentary, so I, I've done my research, but I haven't done all of my yeah. research on this. So yeah, that one they, was definitely in the Netflix. They one. go into that one pretty significantly in the Hulu documentary. I know it's mentioned in the Netflix, and that like even more so than anything, you're just like, yo, what is this guy doing? Like he's facing significant jail time, and he's still living this lavish life. He's still running yet another scam. I want to I want to talk about the island of Grand Exu- or Great Exuma rather uh, in the Bahamas, and I want to talk about the irony, the metatextual irony of this festival that led to such terrible conditions that was pretty much just popularized on social media, and the the level of support and I guess charity that has been given to the Bahamas through social media as a result of the Netflix and Hulu documentaries, because there, there's that, uh, that GoFundMe or Kickstarter to yep. pay back the money that Billy McFarland owes you know, the people of uh, Great Exuma. There's, there's something interesting there. It's sort of like... You know, we're being told that we should learn a lesson, that maybe we should be a little bit more critical of the things we see online. We should be more critical of the lavish lifestyles that Instagram influencers and and celebrities and models purport online. And yet, through this documentary, there's a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe or a what have you. Uh, encouraging people once again on to the internet money. to give money yeah. to give money what does that say about us i mean are we just are we just tuned to this is this just who we are we're just constantly willing to give up money because the internet tells us to give it away i thought that was an also uh, a very interesting part of the documentary when they talked about how the marketing and how, and how the pr and how the entire campaign came together with the influencers posting yellow was it yellow or red whatever like like bright red images of of just fire in order to kind of, uh, I guess, spur interest in the festival itself. It, it was like the most millennial approach to marketing ever, paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars to different influencers. Uh, but I, I don't know, man. Like, it's crazy that it, it happened. Like, it's crazy that it got that far. You'd think that, sure, someone could do fancy marketing. Like, they hired that company that was essentially a meme account. Uh, Fuck Jerry. That's literally the name of the company, which is crazy. And I, th- I think they're like legitimately a real marketing agency. Like they have other clients. This wasn't like their first client or anything. I, I just find it ridiculous that it actually got this far. Like you could see something be built up through marketing, but then the final step of the actual festival being put together not happening, but it did. <laughs> and it went through to the very end. And I think that's what I find the most mind blowing about it. And I think you're right. It really does speak to online culture and internet culture. Like what lessons were learned from this? We're doing, uh, people are seeking donations through Kickstarter and platforms like that to help uh, individuals that were affected um, on the, the, the great island of Exuma. So I like, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you just have to look at and just shake your head. That's really what I did throughout the entire documentary until I got to one very specific part. I don't even know how we're going to address this without bleeping out or using innuendo. Um, oh, obviously, I know this, you're this about. is a spoiler cast, so that you know, we're going to spoil parts of the documentary. There is a scene in the Netflix documentary during which uh, Billy McFarlane's mentor and probably the person who had maybe the most experience of anyone on the Fire Festival Fire he, team. He was like the head of PR. He was the guy I was yeah. referring to before. Uh, Andy. Yeah. Um, so there's a scene where we find out that Billy McFarland asks Andy to perform a sexual act on an individual from the Bahamas who's responsible for customs because there's something like 175,000 US dollars worth of, of, water. of water being held at customs. And... The only way that the fire festival can get all of this water is by having someone perform, and I'm so sorry that I'm saying this out loud, perform fellatio on a customs officer or or what have you. And rather than like just explicitly saying, no, it didn't happen, the documentary builds it up in this way where you're left wondering, did he do it even though he said he didn't? I, and I think he did. <laughs> like the way that all that was framed, that's what I took away from it. That's just the level of lunacy that the Fire Festival generated. It got to a point where someone actually had to r- consider, r- like, rational it out, just think about possibly performing fellatio to make sure the festival goes on. He even, like, realized after the fact that that was crazy that he considered doing it. Whether or not he did, who knows? He says that he didn't. Um, that that was like a mind-blowing 
part of the documentary at two and that wasn't it that wasn't in the hulu one at all there was like certain moments like that in the netflix documentary that were like watershed oh my god how did this happen uh moments um and and one of the other things i wanted to mention too that i found fascinating was just like all the footage from behind the scenes stuff happening um i'm assuming that was pulled from companies like fuck jerry that were doing um uh marketing and npr for for the fire festival but it was almost like people were documenting it that worked for the fire festival, knowing that they were going to have this footage that they could maybe sell to someone eventually for a documentary, which I thought was really interesting too. Um, and then the other thing was the, uh, do you remember at the very beginning of the documentary when they're leading into the festival's actual creation, when they talked about the very lavish, um, I guess trailer, you could call it a trailer that they put together when they visited the Island. We even see footage of them putting the trailer together because they had drones and people documenting pretty much every step of the, uh, the festival's creation. Yeah. Like that was insane. And that itself, um, I thought it was very interesting because Netflix, the Netflix documentary framed that as being, that was the fire festival. That's what it was supposed to be. So it really did happen, but that's what it was. They just couldn't bring it to this much larger scale because it was humanly not possible given the circumstances and <laughs> the various acts of fraud and a bunch of other factors. Um, but I thought that was very interesting, uh, a very interesting approach in the Netflix documentary to frame that what was really just an elaborate, very expensive commercial as, as actually being the, the real fire festival. It did happen, but it didn't happen on the scale that, that they wanted. Now, on the subject of that of that found footage nature, which of course it it's not really found footage because it's just people documenting it because that's what we do now. We just document our entire lives and put it on social media, or, or a lot of us do. Did the Hulu documentary have a lot of that footage, or were there recreations, or was it just static images? Some scenes of the documentaries are sort of blended into each other because they cover the same topics, but I don't think they had as much found footage. I know I know that for a fact. I think there was the famous clips um, of the people running around, like it's uh, Lord of the Flies when they're trying to get to their tents or uh, Billy McFarlane standing on top of what looks like a tractor trailer, like the back end of a tractor trailer throwing luggage to people, which was crazy um, that he was like that involved on that level with things. Uh, there was those clips in the Hulu documentary, um, but that that was about it. There, was, there definitely wasn't as much um, uh, found footage, as you called it, in the, in the Hulu version. I guess I want to ask you uh, what is a difficult question to answer. Who do you blame for what happened with the Fire Festival? Do you blame Billy McFarland or, inversely, do you blame society, in quotes, <laughs> and, and, and do you blame oh, just man. the infrastructure that has been created, this, this, this separate life has been created through social media, through Instagram, through Twitter, through Facebook? I think the easiest way to answer that is it's a combination of a bunch of factors. Like, it was his idea. It was his baby. Whether or not he actually intended it to ever really exist, we will never know. I do think that at some point he did, and then it went off the rails. But then you also have to blame uh, influencer culture. Not very many people are as media savvy as maybe you and I are. We see ads on Instagram all the time that don't look like ads. They just look like somebody sharing an image of a product that they're interested in when really they are truly an ad. I know some of these are marked with like hashtag ad or like uh, Instagram has uh, like paid sponsorship things now. YouTube has similar features. But I think it's it's still really easy to fool someone into uh, thinking that something is authentic when it really is a paid ad. Um, and ultimately, in my mind at least, that's what the Fire Festival speaks to. Because I don't think any of these kids that ended up going when they saw like all these Instagram models posting these photos, not just the the like red block that was the the eye catching initial thing to kind of uh, build up interest. They they didn't really see them as ads. They saw them as like, oh, they're going to this because they think it's cool, not because they're getting paid a hundred grand for one Instagram photo. I think that people just aren't as aren't media savvy, particularly younger people, to even realize that that's what's going on. Billy McFarland, totally his fault, but also uh, just the way that we use social media in general and the lack of education surrounding what even an influencer is and what their job is. Their job is to sell you products, right? You know what I mean? I don't even think some people even, like that doesn't click in their mind that like some of, there's YouTube channels out there that are huge that literally exist just to sell you stuff. And I don't think people really realize that. And that actually leads us perfectly into our next segment that I like to call, It's Hard Out Here for an Influencer. 
Now, it's worth acknowledging that Netflix's Fire Festival documentary doesn't explicitly deconstruct online or social media influencing so much as it uses social media as an additional condemnation of the Fire Festival, the team, and of course Billy McFarland. Still, there is no denying that the Fire Festival frenzy was generated, like Patrick said, at least in part by the allure created by the site of Instagram famous models and lesser celebrities advertising the festival through social media. So I had a chance to speak with online content creator Casey Stewart, and I'm a Toronto-based content creator, speaker, director, and uh, I love traveling. Who walked me through the online influencing industry, beginning with how she first got her start. So when I was young, I was a young entrepreneur. I wrote a book and started a publishing company when I was a teenager. I love writing. And I also did lots of stuff, you know, like commercials and things. So I really kind of liked being on camera. And then... When I went to school, I went to university in Australia and um, I kept a diary on MSN spaces of what I was doing so that my family and my friends could know what I was up to. And then I was on MySpace, I had a blog there. And then um, after university, I started CaseyStewart.com and that was a place for me to, um, you know, put people, places, things, thoughts, you know, what I write about what I was doing and just kind of grew from that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And I wanted a place where I could keep more memories because you can forget so many things. So many things happen in a day. If you don't write them down, it's impossible to remember. So keeping a diary was sort of my first uh, goal. And then it turned into a whole thing. I guess my career is kind of made up of a few different things now. So, which, But it, that all stems from having my blog, really. Um, I, uh, you know, in 2008, 2009, I uh, was one of the first, you know, we used to call them like the tweeters of the Twitterati or there was like, you know, the Toronto, there was all these tweet ups and stuff. So I used to host a, a tweet up um, with a bunch of Toronto people called uh, Generation YTO, Gen YTO. And um, I was part of that crew. We hosted that pretty regularly. And that was kind of the start of social media. That was for like PR, tech and startup people. And there wasn't a huge, there wasn't as many people as there are now. So that really helped people get to know. And I always took photos at the event and posted them on my blog. So people started to, you know, they'd go to my blog, they'd see my photos, they'd add write stories about the night. And um, I started doing that. And then I got um, around that time, you know, I, people with more people paying attention to my blog, then, um, uh, you know, I got my first kind of, uh, someone wanted, I was so excited, someone wanted to send me something. And I could give one away on my blog. And it was a Microsoft Zune. <laughs> That's so old, that device. But uh, I was really excited. Uh, and then I kind of used my platform that I, and what I've been doing in social media. And I got a job at Much Music. And I ran all the social media for Much on MTV Canada. So I had a really cool job and did social media. And that really helped bring a lot of visibility to me. And I left that and I won a massive YouTube contest with Virgin America. And um, it was like a social media contest. You had to vote for people. So, and it was really long. It was like three months. So everyone knew about it. And, um, you know, that also helped bring a lot of visibility. And then I started getting more brand partnerships um, and I quit my job and I did that full time for a little while. But at that time, influencer wasn't really a term yet and it was actually kind of hard to get people to pay you to do social media or to write about stuff because they'd say but social media is free and you know it's your blog and so that was kind of a bit of a struggle at that time and then um then I got asked if I wanted to come take a job as a social media director and I went to work for a Toronto agency called Community so I was 
I've never actually worked in an agency or been a boss before, <laughs> but I was like, I knew that I could do it. Uh, you know, I went to school for marketing and, you know, college, university is fine. And it was a really great experience. I loved working there. I had a team of people and we ran some big, big um, consumer product brand campaigns and stuff. Um, and then I had another job after that in social media director. And I just kind of, after that, I kind of ended up leaving, having a full-time job. And then now I do a lot of partnerships with my blog. Like I've worked with TELUS for nine years. I work with Sassoon um, on a regular for the last, I'm on my third year, same with Aeroplan. I'm on like a multi, you know, I've worked with the same brands for a few years. So I think, uh, yeah, and then that having my blog and stuff and doing all those events helped me get a speaker agent. I got contacted by the National Speakers Bureau and they were like, hey, we'd love you to, you know, be one of our speakers. But before I did that, I spoke for free at like every social media event that I could. Interestingly enough, Casey specified that she isn't actually very fond of the term influencer. I would rather not be called that. Like, uh, there's lots of other stuff I do. I have a speaker agent. I work with a Toronto production company as a director, and I've been a social media director. So there's a lot of things that have, over time, I've earned influence, you know, because I was one of the first people and won awards, and people know me. People know me on the internet, but they also know me in real life. So I don't rely on just the influence of my maybe Instagram the word influencer now basically means you have a lot of followers on the internet. When I started, it wasn't what it was called. So, you know, I was a blogger for a long time and now people are like, oh, you're, you know, it's, you're, they call people an influencer. So I kind of hate the term and I'd rather not be called that. The thing is now influencers, there's so many people that they just like have Instagram and they have a bunch of followers and they're an influencer. But not as many people maybe, and I don't even know if it matters, but like, it's not like they have done a lot of stuff that people have been following and they are their thought leader. You know, it's not like that same kind of influence. It's just kind of people follow them because they have amazing photos, which is cool too, I guess. Casey explained that more often than not, brands reach out to her for coverage rather than the other way around. Honestly, I should totally pitch more people, but I... I really never do. Very rarely. Um, it's mostly people I've worked because I've been doing this for a long time. A lot of people maybe that work in an agency capacity could be, maybe I worked with them a couple of years ago. Maybe I spoke in their class. This has happened a bunch of times where if someone's a marketing or social media professor, that's someone I know or I don't know, I always will volunteer to speak in their student's class. And uh, so many times people have been like, you spoke in my class and now I work here. And you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's mostly agencies or directly brands reaching out to me. Casey also clarified that if she doesn't like a product, she simply won't review that product. Honestly, I really, it's very rare that I would work with anything that I haven't ate, drank, worn, tested, or done. Because it wouldn't be my, it wouldn't be my honest opinion. And I wouldn't actually know what I'm talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't write bad reviews. If there's something that I really hate, I send it back or I don't do the partnership or I say this isn't going to work. Um, but I, my audience knows that they can count on me for something that's honest, that's positive, that's maybe a little funny or something. And, um, you know, I try to think of my blog as something that if you're having a shit day, you can go to my blog and it'll make you feel better. I'm more being paid for my work, like writing the posts, taking the photos, styling the photos, putting them on the internet, sharing them on the internet. I think that's what I'm being paid for. I'm not really necessarily being paid for my opinion because if I didn't like it and I didn't think it was good, I wouldn't do it. But I, I you know, I mean, I can't think of something. I mean, once I got sent this gum and someone wanted me to work with this gum and they're like, we're just following up to see if you want to work on the thing. And all I wrote back is, have you tried to come? Because it's like, it, it was the worst come ever. And, you know, I just said, that's not going to work. And another time I got asked to, I signed a contract to do a, um, like a multi-month thing about uh, that Rogers Magazine app that you download, but you can't share. I mean, it has so many problems. And I said, I can't work on this. Like, I'm sorry. It's just, it's not going to work. 
I asked Casey about the similarities and differences between so-called traditional marketing and modern influencing. I mean, you still get people that are like, we'd like to, you to do all this work and we're not going to pay you. Like that still happens. That's probably the most annoying thing because if someone's like, here's the deadline and here's what we want. And it's like, are you kidding? Do you think I'm just sitting at home waiting for you to throw me a $50 something? You know. Casey addressed the burnout she sometimes experiences as a result of her line of work. Yeah, I absolutely. I have a like 15 or something posts that I on my blog called Sometimes I Don't Feel Like It. And that's exactly it. That sometimes I don't feel like talking about anything. I don't feel like being an internet person. I don't feel I don't want to like pick up my phone all the time. But I've really dealt with that over the last year or two years is I've really I don't go to as many events anymore because I don't want to have conversations and I don't really want to make small talk. I'm busy. I've got work. I love staying home. I go to the cottage every weekend in the summer. I took a week off Instagram totally over the Christmas holidays. So balance is key, man. Burnout is real. I was also curious about any privacy concerns Casey might have as a result of her work. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm my real self. Um, totally. I mean, there. I, but I'll talk about on my blog how sometimes I don't feel like it. And yes, every picture on me on Instagram is smiling and in bright colors. That's a curated feed that I want. And when I look at it, it makes me feel happy. Um, but I also, I don't, I'm a stepmom and I have a boyfriend and I have a house and I don't share a lot of like, I don't share nudity. I don't share about my relationship. I don't talk about sex. I very rarely ever swear. And I don't show the inside of my house or the outside of my house. Um, and I don't tag my like home location. So I feel like, you know, I kind of keep my family and my personal privacy, but I share, uh, you know, my thoughts, my feelings, my smile, my style, and tech and stuff that I like on the internet. Finally, I asked Casey how she feels about the distinction between the so-called real world and the internet. Well, online is still real life. Online is, it's not like it's a comic book or something. It's real. Like it's, it's still real it's just it's like if you look at your photo your parents photo album it only has great photos of your family your family gatherings it doesn't have you know your parents arguing or it doesn't have stuff like that it's that's what people choose to remember you know i think it's it's still real it's not like it's a i mean there are some people i guess who create a fake reality on the internet and try to live up to that reality, which is a whole nother conversation for somebody. But I think, you know, I can only speak for myself and uh, what I post on the internet is real. It is really where I am or what I'm doing or how excited I am or how happy I am about something. And, you know, I think that's a cool way to do it. Now for our final segment that I like to call The Internet. What is it good for? Listen on for my interview with Professor Megan Bowler, Professor, Social Justice Education, University of Toronto. When I think about the value of social media, I think about it in the context of the my particular interest in, in news media and propaganda and the fact that the advent of the internet, which of course is distinct from social media and the World Wide Web, provided a way in which people could share information that was not uh, represented in corporate-owned news, for example. So at the time, it was extremely significant in the you know early 2000s that we had alternative accounts of events. So for example, living in the States after September 11th, uh, so much of the the U.S. Um, corporate-owned uh, traditional and mainstream news had a, had a patriotic um, air about it, and in fact was uh, advocating invading uh, Iraq, which was entirely a illegal uh, uh, and preemptive war. But in any event, that that in that context, one can clearly see there is great value in being able to have an alternative means of communication that allows one to have access to different um, interpretation or 
versions of the facts, et cetera, or even access more easily have access to international news or, or media in that instance. Um, of course, as we have continued um, to see social media and, and digital technologies develop, what we're seeing is that because um, the people winning that race are those working hand in hand with corporate capital, um, we no longer have any sense of, um, well, it's much more difficult to have a sense of the integrity of the uses of the media or of the content. It's become a much more complex uh, state of affairs. But when I think about the virtue of it, I think about it in terms of um, alternative accounts of news that we don't get through corporate and mainstream sources. And I think of it also for certainly for um, grassroots activism and for marginalized communities, it has provided um, a low cost for many, a low cost means of sharing information and um, connecting or networking that wasn't wasn't so readily feasible um, uh, prior to the advent of social media. Well, in many ways, to me, the, the answer to, to what happened seems fairly straightforward, and that is um, that these, um, these technologies have been um, have been, as it were, co-opted or, um, or you know, have run amok uh, in the hands of, of corporate capitalism and consumer capitalism so that even, for example, the, the documentary, which I, I watched in preparation for this um, on the Fire Festival, um, we, we see how individuals who are um, interested in, in, in uh, profit um, are able to manipulate systems um, of technology and of communication and of media systems to, for their own individual uh, profit or benefit. And similarly, I mean, one of my great interests is how there are increasingly shared um, corporate uh, and economic government and military uses and applications of these technologies that we're talking about. And yeah, and, and those are um, of great concern. So. Of course, those who um, have the greatest consolidation of financial resources and economic resources um, are able to, to um, well, I mean, so what I'm trying to say is in many ways, what has, what now appears to be the evil side of technology and media is something we've seen always in, um, in the Western world and in uh, capitalist um, societies in terms of how technologies tend to be used and and made to be used for profit as opposed to being used for, um, you know, particular forms of justice or good or democracy. So, I mean, it really raises the question of are there alternatives to the existing, uh, to the existing internet? And I think that is something that many of us are, are wondering about and struggling with, with uh, you know, variations of hope that that will come about in the future. In the again in the early um, in the early 90s and the and the 2000 I mean in the late 90s and the early 2000s people and scholars and people did tend to distinguish between these two realms but increasingly I would say that both scholars and the people everyday folks you talk to will say no there really isn't a distinction and uh, I think it it's really important to understand that these um, "Quote unquote realities absolutely bleed into one one another, and I, I I don't think it makes sense to speak of these as distinctive spheres at all. I mean, we can talk about all sorts of examples um, in which um, our connections with other human beings online um, turn into actual face-to-face -face relationships, or uh, instances in which um, uh, instances." Uh, I don't know. There's so many examples we could we could speak of of the ways in which um, the the realities of of digital technology and media bleed into real life. So I don't think in terms of social or political or economic um, realms that it makes any sense whatsoever to distinguish between these. And and particularly because both you know capital itself has become almost a non-material good and simultaneously information has become this non-material good, these bits and bytes. And 
at this point, whether one has um, access to information or to economic resources, um, in many instances, those are one and the same. So power equals having access to, um, you know, high, you know, grand amounts of um, digital data or grand amounts of economic resources, and those might very well be interchangeable. So one thinks about Facebook or Cambridge Analytica. Facebook is an excellent example. Why is there a monopoly on on that? Uh, you know, why is that monopoly allowed to to regulate so many aspects of our personal and political lives? Um, it's it's now you know defining forms of friendship and relationship and forms of um, information exchange and definitions of trust and even perhaps our very emotions, like by, you know, using emoticons and making those familiar globally, um, it's arguably transforming even how we feel at the at the most utmost uh, sort of physical or spiritual sense. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think this makes any sense to distinguish between virtual and real anymore. Well, I, I think it, you know, it raises the question of if if there is no longer a distinction between the virtual and the real, then what is it that we would classify as a genuine or authentic experience? It may very well be that, and and only increasingly so, as as our societies become more and more technologically mediated, and as we interact more and more with artificial intelligence, I, I don't know that we're going to have um, continue to have definitions of what counts as authentic or genuine in the ways that you and I perhaps nostalgically imagine or or wish would be the case. So, you know, often somebody might say, say we're having a, creating a virtual museum or say students who can't go on field trips or are given the opportunity to experience wilderness through the internet. Well, unfortunately, uh, given the the rate at which um, you know the climate change is occurring, et cetera, it may be that what counts as a real experience or a genuine experience for many uh, generations down the road will be what we now consider to be uh, a non non authentic um, virtual experience. But I, I again, I don't know. Um, I. Well, I absolutely sympathize with your question, and I want to retain those categories. I don't think that for the majority of, um, and not just first world necessarily, not just first world, because this technology has um, has permeated so many societies that um, you know much of this is is a technologically mediated experience for for many people. But I suppose particularly first world people, this um, this distinction. Uh, is increasingly not not going to be one that um, that that makes sense and uh, in a you know in a common sense kind of way. Yeah, this is such a million dollar question. Who is who is most susceptible to to propaganda? Um, it really depends on which. Study you're looking at, for example, I believe a recent study said that um, that there are, say, um, the an older generation who tends to be um, less savvy about knowing when they're being taken advantage of through this kind of media, um, uh, and yet, uh, and then one could ask, is it people who are more or less educated? Um, yeah, this is a this is a really crucial question. Who is who is most susceptible? Um, it just it, it makes me think about. I don't know if I'll maybe we can come back at this for a thirty second soundbite. But I've also been trying to understand why is it that why is it that um, how do we understand the fact that the extreme right produces so much more content. And that so, so, for example, YouTube, um, one of the big issues I think that is of great concern is on YouTube. Uh, even if you start watching some progressive or social justice oriented material, sooner or later, it is going to, through their recommendation algorithm, take you to material produced by the extreme right. 
So that is partly because the amount of material produced by the extreme light. Another fact about that material is that it often is inaccurate and it tends to be much less accurate than material written by folks on the quote unquote left. And, you know, there are always exceptions to this, but but by and large, um, you know, how do we make sense of this? And how do we make sense of the fact that conservative people um, have been shown to have more fear about those who are different from themselves than uh, people on, on the more progressive side of politics? So there's a, a, a an extent to which fear seems to be a factor in this kind of um, polarization that we're seeing in terms of, of media and who's uh, exposed to what. So these are the questions that, that come to my mind when, when I'm wondering who is most susceptible. Um, so thinking even about Fox, you know, Fox News, I think there isn't enough attention to the role of Fox News in our current media climate because um, uh, it's clearly having a huge effect in terms of educating people in a particular way. So um, this isn't a really clear answer to your question, but I think I do think that um, improved education is absolutely key and that when we're talking about either Canada or the United States and looking at what kind of what kind of education people are getting, what kind of history are they learning? Um, I think these, these, and what kind of critical skills for reading the media, these are really pressing concerns and uh, ones that don't get enough airtime. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and pretty much every podcasting app out there. Patrick, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Patrick underscore O'Rourke or on Mobile Syrup. You can find me at Samir Chabro 94 on Twitter. You can find Mobile Syrup at Mobile Syrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, feel free to send us any movies or television shows you'd like us to discuss on future episodes. If you've got subject or issue ideas, feel free to send those too. Once again, as a reminder, this is my final episode as the host of Viewer Experience. I hope you all enjoyed this show, and I hope you'll continue to listen in the future. Thanks for tuning in. Somebody call 911. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.